Well, our text this morning, as we continue on in this wonderful book of Hebrews, is Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 1 to 7. If you'd turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 1 to 7, page 1198 there in your pew Bibles. Last week, we introduced the idea of rest. We illustrated it to begin by discussing sleep and naps. And I was so thankful by the candor of a couple of our folks who had, uh, were out late at a football game and said they were really looking forward to that nap after church. And I was more thankful that they didn't take it during church. But as we mentioned the blessing of sleep, we all know that there can be significant hindrances to our sleep. For, for our younger families, the, those children will often wake up at various times throughout their, their young years. Uh, those babies, of course, needing nourishment through the night. And uh, the toddlers who start to have some nightmares and they wake up. And, and it just sleep is kind of a precious commodity for some of our young families. For others, physical issues can be a challenge to our sleep. Sometimes our minds just won't allow us to, to settle down and go to sleep. It's just running. And I'm like, enough already. Or we wake up in the middle of the night and, and for some reason uh, the brain just kicks off and we can't get back to sleep. In any case, we all understand the blessing of a good rest. And such is the consideration in our text and where our title comes from, Who Doesn't Enjoy Rest? That's our title for this morning, Who Doesn't Enjoy Rest? As you all know that we're with us last week, we are continuing on in the second part of this text. And uh, wonderful, and Lord willing, we will see how all of this so beautifully and intricately ties together. Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 1 to 7. Let me begin by reading our text for us. Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest... Any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Who doesn't enjoy rest? Well, we find ourselves in the middle of the, the longest warning passage in the book of Hebrews. From a pastoral point of view, one of the more challenging texts to preach in all of the scripture because of its length, because of the severity, and because of what it brings to our hearts and minds. We've often discussed the beauty of the text of Hebrews. Just the, the amazing nuances that exist in the, the nouns and verbs and the way that the sentences are put together. 
The, the beauty of the grammar and the, the complex transitions that occur. How the writer seems to conclude a topic as we talked about Christ's superiority over the angels in the first two chapters. And then as he blends down to Christ's superiority over Moses in chapter 3, he just brings in this little hint of the next major topic, which is Christ's superiority over the priesthood. And there are just these beautifully woven little pieces like a, a, a glorious Persian rug, intricately put together, almost unfathomable to see the way that they all wind together, as if one were to look at the back to try to understand the beauty and nuances. We see it in the, the nuanced introductions and conjunctions and the way he perfectly picks each of these Greek words. And then the parenthetical warnings, stuck as if a parenthesis in the middle of this text, yet beautifully flowing right through it. That in the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, just highlighted through the movement of the text. And now also in chapter 3 and verse 7, carrying all the way down through chapter 4. And, and as we consider these beautifully nuanced pieces, today we see yet another amazing aspect that we have not seen before of the beauty of this text. We're in the third of four sections of this passage. That is the third section of the warning passage. There are four major pieces of it. And this parenthetical warning again began in verse 7 of chapter 3. In verses 7 to 11 were our first section. The warning there focused on the first generation Israelites. And we, under, we call them the first generation Israelites, not because they were literally the first generation. The first generation would have been the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Reuben and Simeon and Issachar and Gad and Joseph, Benjamin, Judah and Levi and the rest. Those would have been the literal first generation. But this is the first generation that God brought out of captivity, out of the land, and where he revealed himself in a powerful way. And they became the ones who first received the promises. They are the ones who first saw the Shekinah glory as they came through and the Red Seas were parted. And millions moved through on dry ground. As they saw the, the pillar of fire by night that would rest over them each night. And the cloud by day. And, and, and God was with them. And in this way, they were the first generation Israelites. This group, unfortunately, became a representation to us of unbelievers. It became an illustration of those who lived in open rebellion amidst the presence of God. And, and we want to say, oh my goodness, how could this happen? Who could see all these things and yet reject God? And yet we live in a world that does the very same thing. The second section of the warning passage was in verses 12 to 19 of chapter 3. Now another group is recognized. We move from the first generation Israelites into the first generation Christian Jewish people to who Paul was writing this letter. The group is recognized as this first Israelite Christian generation because they are this church predominantly of Jewish faith 
who are being brought the word of God, who are living immediately beyond the time of Christ. Remember the parallels that we've already discussed. How 40 years is often brought forward representative of that first unbelieving group and the 40 years in the wilderness. And yet it was identically 40 years from the time of Christ, or very nearly so, to the writing of this epistle to the first generation Israelite Christians. This group that we see in the second part of the warning passage reflects the false believers in the church. They think they are believers because of their actions, and yet they are not. Probably the most dangerous group in the church because of their complacency, because of their comfort. I'm all fine. I'm good here. You don't need to worry about me. I've been in the church my whole life. I know the Lord. I grew up in the church. And everything's good with me. Well, these are the ones that he writes about next. This group representing the false believers. And, and we see this specifically that they think they're believers but are not. And the text, even again in its beauty, illuminates that for us. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. He calls them brethren. We would expect by this greeting that they are those who know the Lord. Those are the brothers. Those who are part of the family of God. But yet we recognize as he goes on in verse 12 and he tells them to guard themselves against an unbelieving heart that would fall away from the living God. Well, this cannot be true of a believer. There are no believers that fall away from the living God. For when you are saved, you are always saved. But there are those who believe they are and are not and herein lies the danger. Verse 13 confirms this where it tells them to be careful of the and not to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, this will not happen to a true believer, but yet it does happen. And it happens to those who think that they're okay. And now in the third section in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 4, and in this section, now we look at the third group in the church, the believers. We see all three groups in every church throughout history. There are, of course, the unbelievers, those who are amongst us and who willingly would say, no, I do not know Christ. I have not been obedient to baptism. I'm not moving in that direction. I'm here because I'm stirred by curiosity and, and desire to know more about what y'all are speaking about. But this is not my heart. This is not my focus. This is not where my obedience lies. And then there is the false believers, those who think that they are okay. And, of course, praise the Lord for the believers who recognize and whose lives are established in the truth of Jesus Christ. And these exist at all times throughout the church. They existed from the beginning of the church age all the way to the present and shall exist all the way until the church age concludes. Well, we know this section addresses believers because in verse 3 he says, we who have believed enter that rest. Those who have believed by faith enter the rest, which is the rest of God in eternity. Additionally, we see in verse 2 that there is a contrast of the preaching. Those who have all had the word preached to them, yet for some it was not equated with faith and therefore did not profit them. One group received the word and the other did not receive it with faith and thus it had no profit. They're not specified here as unbelievers or false believers because both are in the same condition. He, he is contrasting these groups, but he's really just contrasting the believers and everyone else. 
As he confirms this comparative statement of unbelief, he tells us that the first two groups don't fulfill and don't achieve, and yet the second one does. The inference is that the preaching did benefit this group of believers because it was accompanied by faith. The topic of our verses is obviously rest. Again, hence our title, Who Doesn't Enjoy a Good Rest? Rest was introduced to us at the beginning of our first section in verse 11 of chapter 3. And there in Hebrews 3 and 11 it says, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And why was it that they didn't enter? Well, verse 8 of chapter 3 tells us they hardened their hearts in the wilderness. Verse 9 says they tested God. Verse 10 says they went astray in their hearts. And in Psalm 95, which we studied a few weeks ago, we looked at this section of Scripture and noticed that it was because they were stubborn. Their main sins were grumbling and disobedience. How incredible for us to recognize that sin, to know how prevalent it was amongst them, and that this was the damning condemnation upon an entire generation, that you are grumbling and disobedient, and yet still it exists in the church today. Scripture condemns grumbling in both testaments. Obviously, in the Old Testament, as the sin for which God destroyed this whole generation in this first generation, but Saul also in the New Testament. Listen to Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. How clear could it be for us, beloved? We're not to be those who are grumbling, not to be those who are complaining, not to be those who are arguing about foolish things. No, that is not what we're to reflect. And the punishment is also clearly portrayed in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 10, Paul reveals this same thing. Confirms the grumbling as the reason for the destruction of these. And despite these clear warnings of danger, we still see people grumbling. And we must, beloved, each guard our own heart. For we can become that way. We will exalt ourselves on the altar of self. And we will say, yes, it is mine. We are, we are as if we were that three-year-old child with a new toy whose friend comes over to play and wants to play with that new truck and he grabs it and says, mine! Yeah, we can all be that way. We can all be that way. And the result of their grumbling is that they would not enter his rest. In the second section, all the group being addressed what changed to the false believers, as we mentioned, the diagnosis does not change in verse 18. The disobedient did not enter his rest. The direct reference is to the first generation Israelites, but the indirect reference is to the false believers, the first generation Christians. Both have identical end conditions. That is, no end rest it's a most peculiar thing that although we have a completely different generation, we have the exact same result, not entering his rest. Of course, this is because of the universal destination of all of those who do not believe. And their ultimate failure 
was unbelief, as verse 19 concludes. They did not enter because of unbelief. And the transition in chapter 4 to believers brings us to our text today. And as we mentioned, it was their faith which identified them as those who entered his rest. Last week, we looked at the introduction to rest in verse 1 and the beginning of this whole new section. We also looked at our first two points. The first was faith's prophet of rest in verse 2 and how there was a prophet for those whose faith was associated and brought them rest but for those who did not have faith the preaching was not connected to them and there was no prophet and they did not enter the rest then in verse 3 we saw our second point faith's possession of rest and it begins for we who have believed enter that rest we we possess the rest of God because we have belief and it brings us to today's text and really our third point in our message which is faith's progression to rest faith's progression to rest in verses four to seven so the, the re, so with rest is the clear topic of our discussion we knew have a, we have a new element that's been introduced in our rest don't we the text in verse 4 now talks about a Sabbath rest. This now makes the third kind of rest we've looked at so far. And we need to consider this new rest, the, the seventh day rest, or as it was termed, the Sabbath rest. Where does it come from? What's it mean? How does it connect to the other rest that we've looked at? Well, we find out that it is one of the earliest mentions of rest in our Bibles. We're very familiar with Genesis chapter 2 and verses 1 to 3, which read, Thus the heavens and all the earth were completed, and all their hosts. Verse 2 of Genesis 2. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the Bible's first picture of rest. The Sabbath rest is continually pointed out in the scripture. In fact, one of the most prevalent places is in the Ten Commandments. Another very familiar location to us. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8, the fourth commandment. In Exodus 20, in verse 8, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Sabbath literally means rest. Shabbat is the Hebrew word. It is celebrated to this day in the land of Israel. At evening time on Friday, the Shabbat begins, all of the stores are to close, all work is to cease, and they will celebrate it from the sundown or literally between the two evenings on Friday till the same time on Saturday between the two evenings. And that is a time that is set apart. It is to be a day of rest. As we saw in Genesis 2, 
It's a day that's sanctified. Well, we know what sanctified means. It's this same idea of being set apart, of being separate, of being other. Well, God continually points to this idea of Sabbath. And with it, the idea of Sabbath rest for the land, even. Sabbath rest is used 29 times in the Old Testament. The seventh day rest, 39 times. Almost 70 times the Lord draws us to this important idea of Sabbath rest. The Sabbath rest is associated initially with physical rest as well as with spiritual rest. There are two components to it. Now that should be ringing a bell in our minds because that's what we've seen for the other rest so far as well. Each of the other rests points to the Sabbath. They, are, they have a tremendous harmony and an interaction which is so important for our text. Well, why? Why all this emphasis on rest? Because it reminds us, beloved, of our restoration to God. We are separated from God. We are other than God. We live in a sin-cursed earth. We are men and women of sin. Sin drenches our lives and all about us. Our very flesh wrestles against our spirit because of our sin. And yet there is a restoration that is coming. There's a restoration where we will rest from the sin. Do you look forward to that rest? I'm overwhelmed to consider that one day I will not have to worry about the sins of this body, the sins of this earth. That I don't have to, you know, turn on a, a, a game and in the middle of a commercial go, oh, no, not that. It's everywhere. It's everywhere about us. It's in our schools. It's in every facet of our lives. But there will be a day of rest. And that rest will be a time where we will rest as well eternally but we will rest from our toil as well as our sin and that toil beloved it's part of the curse that came on us in Genesis 3:17 the lord cursed the ground and he said thorns and thistles it will produce for you of course because of the sin of adam and eve work is not the curse work is a blessing Work was given before the fall. It was the delight of man to work the garden and to till it and to see the beauty of all God had created come up before him and to have a hand in it. And if you have not done gardening, let me tell you, go out there and get your fingernails in the dirt. It feels great. I, lo I don't love weeding so much, but I, I love pruning roses. I love, you know, cutting palm trees back. I love mowing the grass. Well, I love it more when the boys mow the grass, but that's all right. The blessing exists that work was assigned because it is a gift for us. But the Sabbath rest reminds us of the toil. And there is much toil in our lives. And, and we realize that God has programmed our whole existence for us to consider rest. What happens every day? Work day, Sabbath day. We go out and we go through our day. We get to the end of the day, we get tired. When you get to be over 50, you get a lot more tired a lot more early. Amen? Thank you. Glad I'm not the only one. But God has programmed us that we would need a rest for our bodies. Our bodies must sleep each night. This is not happenstance. Yes, it is what we are designed to do, but we're designed this way because we are designed to remember the rest that God has given to us. 
And all of these point to the eternal rest. All three of our terms for rest have the same focus. We talked about that rest which was the promised land rest where the nation of Israel was to go into the land and they were to have rest. We talked about the eternal rest that was alongside of it. And that as we looked at Psalm 95, it added that component. Not only was there a component of rest, which they would not enter, but what they really weren't entering is they weren't entering salvation. There was a spiritual and an eternal component. So as we see the promised rest, as we see the element of the eternal spiritual rest and of the Sabbath rest, they are one and the same. And they are focusing us on one component. Each week we are as well to have this Sabbath day's rest, a remembrance of God. And no, this is not a day for football, even when it's the Super Bowl. It's a day that is sanctified and set apart. It is a day for us to worship. It's a day for us to remember God, for, for, for us to clear our minds of our, all the world has thrown at us. To be together as a fellowship. Is it not sweet to be together? I know that you love it because I hear you talking and, and the service starts and here I'm still halfway back through the church talking to someone too. It's wonderful to have that fellowship and that communion and that community. And it's to be that way through the day. It's a day where we focus on God. We focus on the gift of his people. We focus on the gift of his church. We focus on the gift of his son. And all of these are pointing us, all of these rests, pointing us to the eternal rest. And this theme has been central even to what we've sung this morning. Did you notice that? Consider these words again. Rejoice, the Lord is king. No, I won't sing. Your Lord and king adore. Rejoice, give thanks, and sing in triumph evermore. And then the fourth stanza. Rejoice in glorious hope, for Christ the judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. Rest. We have sung of rest. The eternal home is eternal rest. And how about these? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Eternal rest before our Father at his throne or the second stanza of the beautiful hymn that we heard and learned this morning. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life. My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him and he alone can give me rest. This is the rest of the gospel. This is the only hope for a cursed earth that dwells in sin. And beloved, it is a perfect hope. Resurrection by the Son of God, the hope that his death and resurrection bring us life. And not a hope as the world hopes, but an assured hope, a confident hope. It is the rest which requires our life. Our acknowledgement of sin and our repentance from that sin to live otherwise, to live separate, to live sanctified and holy. 
And, it can, and we continue our efforts towards obedience. And yet our efforts do not bring us the reward. But what they do bring is complete joy. Complete joy. Do you lack joy in your life? It ought not be so. The blessings that we receive for our efforts for Christ are multiplied a thousand times over. Heaped up, shaken down, and pouring over. How is it that when we give to the work of the Lord, when we give of our offerings to Him, that we receive a blessing for that? Where did that money come from? Oh yeah, He gave it to us. Well, you say, well, how'd that happen? Well, who gave you the hands to work? Who gave you the minds to think? And yet, He blesses us for what He gives us. And so also in our spiritual lives. This is what I want for you. This is what I have seen that has manifested to me the most amazing truth in this whole planet. I am blessed because I pursue and do what God tells me to do. How is that? Who comes up with a plan like that? Yeah, you do what I tell you to do and I will bless you for it abundantly. God is so incredible in his amazing love. He tells us in John 15 and verse 11, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We should be overflowing, beloved. We should be the, the most joyous people on the earth. Does that mean we're happy all the time? No. No, that joy and happiness are not the same thing. But there is always a joy in our life because it is Christ who rules in us. It is Christ who is the hope of our rest. John 17, 13 says similar where it says, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. In Christ's glorious prayer to his Father, his prayer is that our joy may be full. Do you think that the Father hears the prayers of the Son? Do you think that the Son lives in accord with the will of the Father? Do you think these prayers will come to fruition? May we not hinder them. May we recognize the joy that we should have, the glorious joy of striving for Christ, recognizing the peace and the pleasure in our lives as we serve Him. But how sad that some miss it. Heartbreaking that two out of three groups miss it. But God has not designed it such, as we'll see shortly. Beloved, this idea of rest has been God's focus for man since the foundation of the world. And this is just what we saw at the end of our second point in verse 3. Look again at Hebrews 4.3. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. This was faith's possession of rest, but notice something else about this verse. There, there seems to be a conflict here, doesn't there? I mean, how, how is it that the first part of verse 3 says, for we who have believed enter that rest, and then immediately it flips and it says... Just as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What is this entering and not entering all about? It almost seems that there's a contradiction. How does the first clause connect with the second? How does entering connect with not entering? And then, as if the puzzle weren't enough, he adds the third stanza to all of this, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. 
And, and, and now we're, there's this dilemma we're faced with. How does this all come together? How do we understand this? Beloved, let me convey something that I have said before, but it bears repeating a, a multitude of times. There is no conflict in the Bible. There is no contradiction in the Bible. Verses that may at first seem antagonistic to other portions of Scripture are not. The only weakness lies in man's interpretation, often in our presuppositions, in our ideas that we come to the text with. And we say, oh, I'm sure this is what this means because I, I heard on the radio such and such pastor preach on this. No, we can't come to the text with any ideas. We come to it and let it speak the scripture rightly says in Romans 3, 4, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judging. As we encounter these challenging interpretations, we must look deeply to understand what's there. And most of the answers lie in the immediate context of the verses. So let's keep digging. You see, verse 3 straddles our third point here, faith's progression to rest. It, it actually moves from the prior on through. And in verses 4 and 5, we seem to have the same challenge. For he said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Now, note first off, somewhere at the beginning of this verse... This is not an ambiguous reference. It's not that the author doesn't care about what this is written. But as we saw in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6, he knows that his audience are good Jewish people. They know this text full well. He does not have to quote it because he understands that they know exactly that this comes from Genesis chapter 2 as it would be so familiar to them. So rather than being ambiguous, this is a deliberate mnemonic device to draw the memories of the hearer back and to say, it's not somewhere, that's Genesis 2. I know where that is. And then he goes and, and carries it forward to God's Sabbath rest. Well, why is the Sabbath rest now connected with not entering rest? Well, we start to see some connection as there's a contrast being set up, isn't there? There is an element of entry and then an element of not entering. We start to see the, this connection being set up in the seventh day rest is the hope of man's eternal rest, as we've discussed. And the repeated quote from Psalm 95 of not entering God's rest is a reminder of those to whom the offer of rest was removed. So we're seeing these grammatical tools of contrast being set up for us. Verse 6 begins to answer our dilemma. And it says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Verse 6 begins to answer our dilemma. Some are entering and some are not. Yet there are some very significant components to these two groups. Those that are not entering are a result of disobedience, as the end of verse 6 confirms. And this disobedience is parallel to what we saw in chapter 3 in verse 18. 
They did not enter because of disobedience. And then per 319, their disobedience equaled unbelief. Beloved, if we are disobedient to the word of God, it shows that we are not believers in the word of God. A powerful realization. But we notice another important aspect in verse 6. They had good news preached to them. That is, the gospel was given to them, but they did not enter on account of disobedience. That makes us dig a little deeper. What is disobedience? It's a conscious decision of the will, is it not? You cannot disobey what you do not know. You may violate it in ignorance or perform an action unaware of the law which you violate. But disobedience is purposeful. So their failure to enter is because of their willful rejection. This is a very significant statement. For it shows the source of unbelief as rejection. It shows the source of not entering rest as a function of rejecting the offer for rest. And thus their eternal condition of damnation in hell is as a result of their own willful rejection. This is a powerful realization. So also are the details of those that are enlightened regarding those who enter at the beginning of verse 6. Notice it says, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it. What's it saying there? That's, that's a conditional statement, isn't it? It remains for some to enter. It hasn't happened yet. It's not a completed act, but it's one still in process moving to fruition. It's, it's like saying, I can still go to fellowship groups this afternoon. It isn't a reality yet. It hasn't occurred, but the opportunity exists. You all know they're happening. You know where you're to go, and you can go participate in those groups. Well, it's the same point that's being conveyed here in verse 6 as well also what they talk about in verse 3, the believers that entered the rest. So like verses 4 and 5, there's a contrast set up. So we're, we're starting to see the explanation of this dilemma in verse 3. And then in verse 7, we get a little deeper insight where it says, He again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This verse is packed with beautiful insights. We, we saw this verse for the first time back in our first section, in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7, when it was quoted, and then again when it came up, in Hebrews 3 and verse 15. And we know that it is a quote from Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8. And the first time that this is used in 3.7, it ties this whole element of hearing his voice to being his sheep. Those who are his sheep hear his voice and they hearken unto him. They hear and they do not harden their hearts. It's a beautiful picture, one that I detailed in our message back in Hebrews 3, 7 to 11. And, and I'd encourage you to go back and, and to refresh yourselves on the color and vigor there. But another nugget in 7, in verse 7, is the attribute that saying the authorship of Psalm 95 is to David. 
You realize the original Hebrew does not give us that information? This is new revelation. This is fresh insight into the Old Testament from the new. It's stunning that when we realize in the fourth book of Psalms, from Psalm 90 to Psalm 107, those 18 Psalms, that only three of them are given the author. The fewest of any of the books of the Psalms. And yet now we've been given insight into another one of the authors. It's wonderful to gain these new insights from the Word and, and to be reminded how God continues to elaborate what He's telling us about. But even more amazing is the message to believers. Because that's our audience, isn't it? Today, if you hear His voice... Do not harden your hearts. This is the same message that is given to the unbelieving first generation Jews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Beloved, this is a call to self-examination. It is a call to examine one's obedience to the word. Let's recap and put this all together as we consider these verses and understand the full context of this third warning section with the light of the fact that there is this contrast and there is this idea of self-examination. Verse 1 tells us that we are to fear that while a promise remains of his rest that we not miss it. Self-examination. Believers won't miss it, but examine yourself. Be certain that that is the case. Verse 2, we had the good news preached to us, as others did too, but they did not enter because it was not connected with faith. The contrast of those who heard and obeyed and those that do not, examine yourself. Verse 3, for we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he said, I have sworn my wrath they shall not enter. Many thought they would and did not. We must examine ourselves. And then he goes on, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, there's something that's required of us. We're going to see a bunch more about that when we get to our next message. But there is effort that goes on. Why? Because God put out effort when he created this earth. It may have been but his spoken word, but he rested from his labor, from his work. Verse 4, for he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his work. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. The contrast, enter the Sabbath rest of God, because others did not enter. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What a beautiful picture for us. A, a text that seems rather challenging at first, and yet when we look at the entire context and carefully roll it out, we see the beautiful harmony that comes forth. And the bottom line message is examine your obedience. This is Paul's message in Galatians 6.4 where he says, but each one must examine his own work. Examine his own deeds. We must look at our works. Are our works those that are fitting of righteousness? For good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. Are we bringing forth the works of righteousness in our lives? James says, show me your faith. I will show you my works. 
We are not saved by our works, but our faith is exemplified through them. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. Examination. Paul further tells us to, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, but let a man examine himself. So my beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to examine ourselves. We are to examine our deeds. Are the things that we pursuing the things of the Lord? Well, what does it look like practically? This is really what we want to know, isn't it? How does this apply to me? How do I put this into practice? Well, let me give you three areas that I would suggest that you examine. Three areas that are of vital import to your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. Those three are service, body life, and outreach. Examine those areas. Service, body life, and outreach. These pretty much make up the scope of the entire Christian life. Let's talk about service for just a moment. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1, 1 Corinthians 4 and 1, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. As servants of Christ, we are here to follow our Lord and to serve and to serve sacrificially. Paul describes this service, the service that each of us are to exude in this body in 1 Corinthians 12. Let me give you an overview of a few of those verses. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That is, each of us has a spiritual gift. And it is for the common good. But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. We are in this church purposefully. God has known us. He has put us here for the work that we might do. And he goes on to say, God has placed us as members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired, so that there may be no division in the body and that the members may have the same care for one another, that is to serve one another. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Beloved, you are commanded to serve in this body. Body life is similar, but falls into the realm of spiritual care for one another. Eighty times in the New Testament, we're commanded with the one another's of Scripture. Using God's word, we are to instruct, to exhort, to reprove, to come alongside our brothers and sisters in the faith. But paramount in this is your command to disciple one another. In Titus 2.1 it says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And he goes on to exhort older men with younger men and older women with younger women. You are commanded to disciple one another in the spiritual life of the body. Examine yourself. The third area is outreach or evangelism. Paul said to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And we are commanded to be obedient to the Great Commission. Are we not all Great Commission people? Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are to be making disciples and we are to be carrying forward the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are the practical avenues of service in our church? Well, we seem to be doing fairly well here. The ministries in our church are, are moving along internally as we serve one another. But there yet, may yet be some here who are not involved in the ministries of the church. Do you realize that God has placed you here? We just read it in 1 Corinthians 12. He has gifted you to serve here. We are a body, and when any one member of the body is not working, the body is not functioning effectively. I had a conversation with a gentleman yesterday over coffee, and we were talking about membership versus regular attenders. As regular attenders, you are to be a part of this body and functioning. You are to understand that you need to be a part of the membership. But if you're here and you're regularly under the teaching of God's word, you need to plug in. And part of that plugging in will be joining into the membership of the church. As for body life, we've made opportunities for your discipleship in almost every arena of this church. Our men's Bible study goes to small groups so that you can interact and you can learn the prayer needs and you can disciple one another. Our women's Bible study also breaking into small groups and doing the same thing. Titus 2 our fellowship groups, where prayer needs are getting shared, even equipping hour. How do I disciple someone? Well, we're going to have a little more formal class coming up in a couple months as we approach the holidays. I'm hoping to bring you all together for a joint equipping hour that I'm going to teach for a few weeks, show you that. But in its simplest form, it is knowing the prayer needs of someone and asking them about them and then praying for them. Following up, how you doing with that? How can I be praying? How's that medical issue going? The doctor's getting any answers? You still on that medication? How you feeling with all of that? Anything further I can pray for you? Well, yeah, there is this one thing. That's how discipleship starts. And then there is outreach. This is where we really need to get moving. There, We may be doing well in service. There's definitely room for us to grow in body life and discipleship, but it's outreach where we really need to get moving. The opportunities in our Bible club are amazing. We had a wonderful meeting this Thursday night. Do you know the things that are going on in our church at Bible Club? How we're reaching out and sharing the gospel. How we're attempting to come alongside as families and to minister to these children. Not just so that we can feel good about ourselves. So that we can share the gospel so that they are part of our church. So we can reach in to their families and to share Christ with them and to have them help us make those inroads. Are you ready for that? That is exciting work. How about our opportunities in jail ministry or rehab ministry? Do you realize that Tom and Dean go to rehab ministries every week? We would love to have you come alongside. Wonderful opportunities to outreach. How about you ladies and participating in the pregnancy center? You know, Debbie Atwell is an active member in the pregnancy center here in Mobile. How vital is it for us to reflect 
a, a right understanding, God's understanding of life, that abortion is an abomination on our planet and on our country. What wonderful opportunities. The blessed missionary opportunities that we've heard of as we had our friends with us as, as Mark Scarborough came to talk to, uh, to us about what's going on in Beirut. The blessing this morning of the Herreras and sharing what's happening in Haiti. Our new missionary to Colombia, Fernando, who has just in the last days asked if we might consider a short-term missions trip to Colombia. These, beloved, are great opportunities right here in our church and in the immediate part of our world to share Christ. Are you in? Are you examining yourself? How are you doing in these arenas? Beloved, the Lord has given us such a glorious body to be a part of. And he has paid an inconceivably high price for us to be here as he sent his son to die in our stead. And he calls us to examine ourselves. Do you have room to grow here? Of course you do. We all do. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter that rest, let us all get busy. Beloved, the first Israelite generation left Mount Sinai as the Lord directed. They were 11 days journey from the promised land. 11 days. And because of their disobedience, they wandered for 40 years until they were all dead. You want to talk about missed it by that much? Let me plead with you, don't miss it. Don't miss it. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, as we talk about service and body life and outreach, and you're like, I don't even know what that is. I got none of that going on in my life. Maybe it's because you got none of Christ going on in your life. Let me plead with you. Accept Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Repent of your sins and come and believe. Turn your life over to the, the greatest master that we could ever have. Be a slave of the one who will give you everything and reward you though you have done nothing. Let us pursue our rest. Let us receive full joy. Let us lay aside every sin and encumbrance which so easily ensnares us and let us press on to the upward call of Christ Jesus in our lives.